Well, welcome if you've joined us while we've been worshipping. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here and delighted to welcome you uh, this morning. There's nothing like being together as a church family, is there? Um, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the same passage that Andrew unpacked for us last week. And last week we looked at this great announcement. You see these two, uh, well, last week we looked at the person of Simeon, this wizened man who says, I can now depart for my eyes have seen your salvation. And last week we we dwelt on this this great announcement that came with Christ. Andrew Andrew closed with the idea that the cross looms large behind the crib, that even with this announcement of the birth of Christ in the temple, we see this great uh, announcement that the child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many, for a sign that is opposed. And he tells the parents, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Even now, this moment in Luke chapter 2 is speaking of the coming crucifixion. But today we're going to look at a slightly different aspect of that story. We're going to look at two wizened and wrinkled saints. We're going to look at Simeon, and we're going to go on and look at Anna. And in many ways, they're the female and male equivalent of each other. And what I want to show you this morning is that they are, in many ways, the, the paradigm example of what it means to wait for the Lord that in a sense they are a picture of the Christian life, that we are waiting for the Lord. It's no coincidence at this time uh, that many in the church celebrate Advent or they mark Advent, the weeks in the the run-up to Christmas. And that that is seen as on kind of two levels. It's seen as entering into this moment, anticipating the incarnation, but it's also about waiting for the second coming, for the second coming of Christ. And so in a sense, I want you to see that Simeon and Anna are for us the paradigm of what it means to wait for Christ. Let's read chapter 2, verse 22 to 38. And when the time came for their purification, about 40 days after Jesus' birth, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. 
and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I want you to first see really clearly that this is a crescendo moment. This is the moment that Simeon and Anna have been waiting for for all their lives. You have to picture yourself there. This is the outer court of the temple, perhaps the women's court, uh, not because women were exclusively in there, but because this was the closest women could get to the sanctuary, a, a large uh, room, perhaps would be able to see a uh, ha- contain 6,000 worshippers. And you can imagine in the hustle and bustle, different people are bringing offerings and, and uh, on their way into the sanctuary to make sacrifices or to, to be on the edge of the sanctuary. And amidst all that hubbub and activity, this moment, Simeon, a man who is perhaps often in the temple, notices the, man, the, the Christ who he has been waiting for. This is the one. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He can depart in peace. He can die a happy man because he has seen the very thing that was promised to him. Note, this is not, they kind of see the promises on two levels. One hand, he, like, like the, the faithful remnant, had been waiting for the Messiah, promised hundreds of years previously, one who would restore Israel, one who would bring comfort to Israel, one who would draw the Gentiles to worship the living God. So on one hand, those are the promises that he's been waiting for. And on the other hand, he himself has a specific promise. He's experienced something of the Spirit speaking to him and telling him that, that to wait for this moment, that he would see the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, before he died. It's, probably, it's likely he talks about, you know, now he can depart in peace. It's likely he's an old man. Imagine the longings, the year after year. Perhaps he's so old he started to, to doubt that promise. But this is the moment he's been waiting for. His longings have been fulfilled. He has seen with his own eyes the salvation promised to his people hundreds of years beforehand. And really what I want you to see is that Simeon and Anna in this picture are a paradigm of the Christian life, of waiting for the Lord. You can see that they're male and female equivalents of each other. They're both old. She's 84. We can predict he's probably old. He's talking about how he's ready to die. They're both devoted to the Lord. He's a righteous and devout man. She is a woman who is forever in the temple, praying and fasting, worshipping the Lord. They are devout, devoted to the Lord. They are both men and women of the Spirit. He comes into the temple almost under the urging of the Spirit. Early on, he's, he's been spoken by the Spirit. The Lord has spoken to him and revealed to him about the Messiah's coming. She is a prophetess, a woman who hears from the Lord. They are deeply engaged in the work of the Holy Spirit. And both are waiting. You see this in verse 25. It describes him as one who is waiting for the consolation of Israel, the, the restoration. That The word literally means comfort. He's waiting for the one. These are, you know, we looked at this earlier in the year in Isaiah, these prophecies about a servant who would come, who would restore Jacob back to the living God and who would draw the Gentiles, draw the non-Jewish people to worship the living God. 
he's waiting, but also Anna. You see this in verse 38. She's rejoicing, she, and she wants to go and tell those who've been waiting for the redemption of Israel. It's, it's almost to suggest that she is, in some way, she knows the others, the faithful remnant. This moment passes many by, I suspect. There are many others just going about their business in the temple, going through the religious rituals, but there's a faithful remnant, a minority, who are holding on to the promises of God, and now they've seen their salvation. And Anna and Simeon are their representatives for us. And what I want you to see, really, is that the Christian life This is, in a way, a picture of the Christian life, awaiting for the return of the Messiah. This is the paradigm example. We talked about how Advent is both awaiting for the the incarnation, awaiting for this moment where we celebrate Christ's um, arrival, but it's also a re-entering in to to the reality of the Christian life, not just for this moment, but in fact for all our lives, that we are waiting for the Messiah's return. Actually, if you go through this, you'll see this is just all the way through how Christians are described in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, Christians are described as those... Let me get the reference. 1 Thessalonians uh, described as those who are waiting. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. These, these, early, these Thessalon- Thessalonian Christians are waiting for the Messiah. The same in Hebrews chapter 9 is described So Christ, having appeared once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What you see in Simeon and Anna in this passage is a picture of the Christian life. We are waiting for the Lord. This is about an orientation, about a sense of expectation and longing for Christ's return that should mark every Christian's life. We say we live in the now and the not yet. We live between the light has come, the light is dawning, so to speak. We've experienced the light coming into our lives, but we know that we live in a world marked by darkness, that the light has, has not fully come so that there is no more darkness. We are waiting for the day when the light will shine and there will be no more darkness. And we sit in the in-between time waiting for the return of Christ. Yet the problem is when I talk about the Christian life as waiting, I suspect this will jar very deeply with us. It will clash with our deepest instincts. It feels unappealing. To wait feels passive, doesn't it? Like if you're waiting for a train, that's not something you look forward to. Waiting is the the preamble towards the thing that is coming. So if I tell you that the Christian life is waiting, it feels passive, it feels deeply unappealing. And of course, we've been discipled into something of an instant society. We live in a world where we are longing, we're not longing, we are constantly satiating our needs and pursuing instant gratification. We've been discipled, next day delivery, same day delivery, next hour delivery, maybe perhaps that's coming next. Think about how you might be at home deciding which delivery service to use to get your food. Am I going to have delivery? Well, that's a 30-minute wait. Uber Eats, that's a 20-minute wait. You know, all the time we're, we're, we're weighing up and we're, every minute counts. We're living in a culture of instant gratification, a culture that cannot wait for anything. Think about the the way we live in the tyranny of the urgent, of of the instant updates, the alerts, the 24-hour news cycles, all of it giving us no time to reflect on the past or wait for the future. And of course, I think this has probably been most demonstrated in this time of coronavirus. 
as we wait, as the months uh, kind of yawn, the yawning time, look, we look forward to this time where we're waiting to return to our normality. And the frustration and the pain that we've experienced and we continue to experience on a daily basis as we wait for that time coming when we can return to normality. That pain, that frustration is just a, an indication of how hard we find it to wait. Waiting does not come naturally to us. And there's a sense to which I want to suggest to you that this moment is something of an object lesson, something of an opportunity for us to learn to wait, to learn this this, uh, kind of the discipline. You know how children need to learn to wait. Waiting does not come naturally to them. Any one of you with toddlers at Christmas time will know this reality, that every day you have to teach them today is not Christmas. Those lovely shiny presents under the tree are not for today. You have to wait until Christmas Day to open your presents. There's a sense to which we need to learn to wait. And I think there's actually, this is almost a sense of great opportunity in this trial that we're experiencing, is that it is an opportunity for us to learn what it looks like to wait for the Lord, to grow patient endurance, to grow a sense of longing and anticipation for Christ's return, and to learn to be devoted to Christ in the midst of the waiting. I want to, in a sense, re- I want you to re-understand what it means to wait. I want you to see this morning that actually those who wait for the Lord, those who have the sure and certain hope of Christ's return on the horizon are unstoppable. They're able to weather suffering. They're able to uh, go through all sorts of trials because they have that hope awaiting them. I want you to re-understand waiting. I want you to show that it's not ambivalent or bored waiting. Actually, it's a sense of anticipation and longing. I want you to see that waiting is not anxious, but actually it's full of patient trust. I want to show you that waiting is far from passive. There's an active, passionate devotion. So let's look at this waiting then. First of all, waiting means anticipation and longing for Christ's return. We're not ambivalent. We are anticipating Christ's return with a sense of longing. See Simeon and Anna's anticipation in this passage. See how he describes how he's been waiting according to your word, how he will have been storing up those promises and looking forward to this day looking forward to this moment, perhaps all their lives. This is the highlight of Simeon's life. This is the moment that he's had his eyes fixed on. So as he goes about his daily life, in the back of his mind, as he goes through his life, he's thinking, yes, but one day I will see the Lord face to face. This is a moment that captivates him, even in its absence, even as he anticipates it. He is, he is in with one eye on this moment. See, Anna, she's fasting in her anticipation. And commentators suggest that that sense of fasting is actually a sign that she recognizes something is wrong. She is, fasting is not a kind of benign activity. Fasting is a sense, her reaction to the reality that there is something deeply wrong. Her people are living under oppression, under the Roman overlords. She, they're being led by leaders who have sold out Sadducees, who have kind of... Um, given in to the authority, made peace with their, with, the, with their Roman authorities, and there's all sorts of sin being tolerated in the community. But she doesn't sink into despair. She doesn't sink into self-pity. You know, she is fasting and praying, praying and inviting this moment. She is looking forward to this moment with anticipation, longing for redemption and restoration. And it's this anticipation 
this longing for Christ's return that I think should grip the people of God. In Romans chapter 8, it describes a sense of groaning, that the people of God join with creation in groaning and longing for Christ's return. Verse uh, 23, it says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That groaning, that sense of longing, saying, look, we, we know that this life, we, are, we are living in a fallen world. We're, we're marked by thistles and thorns, that the, there is still some level of darkness in the world that we live in, but we are groaning with creation. We are longing for Christ's return. In Revelation 22, Christ said he's coming soon, and the church's response Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. This has been the kind of anthem of the church throughout the ages. Come, Lord Jesus. Rather than turning to despair, and, and, and we do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve, we, we lament something of the suffering that we experience in this life, but we look forward to, and actually we turn that grieving into a sense of longing for Christ's return. Actually, there's much more emphasis on the return of Christ in the New Testament than we, we credit, we, we, we live with in our own uh, personal devotion and our conversations. Um, apparently, there are 318 mentions um, of, the, of Christ's return in the 216 chapters of the New Testament. 318 mentions in 216 chapters in the New Testament. Works out as once every 30 verses. And there are, for every prediction of Christ's coming, the first coming, the incarnation, there are eight predictions of Christ's return. See, what I sense in when you read the New Testament, when you look at the early churches, they are, they are saturated in the promises of Christ's return. This, this great reality that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead, to set everything right, to restore everything that's broken, this is a great comfort and hope for the New Testament people of God. This is not just an afterthought. No, this is the great hope that sustains them in the reality and the fallenness and the suffering of this life. Think about Mark 14 that we looked at uh, earlier this year. He taught Christ and tells his disciples to stay awake, to keep watch. It's a picture of a kind of a doorman or a watchman outside the house looking for the master's return, fully engaged with this life, but with one eye on the horizon saying, the master's coming back. I'm looking out for that moment. When I look at the, the way, the posture of the New Testament towards Christ's return, I feel like there's a great contrast with the way we speak about Christ's return in our own lives. How little we give it thought. How much of an afterthought it is for us. How, how we rarely dwell on the promises of Christ's return. And I suspect there are, if you were to list all the things that give us comfort, all the things that as we go through trials in life we kind of, that we use to make us feel better, essentially, I suspect Christ's return would be nowhere near the top of the list. And yet I think for the early church it was very different. And why, why is that? Well, I think for, in one sense there's just a sense of uh, functional unbelief. There's a sense to which we believe it in theory, but actually in practice we do not allow that truth to permeate into our lives. We do not hold on to it as a practical reality. I suspect partly it's also because we've imbibed the gospel of the 21st century. When things are difficult, seek comfort in the like, little luxuries of this life, the distractions that this life affords, all sorts of ways that we've turned to to bring comfort to ourselves when we're struggling, rather than holding on to this hope. 
I suspect one massive reason that we don't think about this, that we don't give this the credit it deserves, is because we've forgotten the joy that this moment includes. I think we get a a taste of it in this passage when um, Simeon greets the Messiah and you can just hear the delight in his voice. Lord, you are now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. As you see his wrinkled hands holding the baby, there is great delight and joy. This, This Messiah that he had just kind of held on to the promises about, he is now seeing in the flesh. Isn't that a picture for the, of what it will be for us too? That the, 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 the Lord who we, have, who we have trusted in, who we have reminded ourselves about, who we have experienced his work by the Spirit, one day we will see him face to face. One day we will enter into that great marriage supper of the Lamb. We, that moment of pr- profound joy. We've um, been reading... Um, with my son, uh, Caleb, who's about two years old. Um, I've been reading um, Death to Death. It's a, it's a book about um, uh, Lazarus's resurrection. <laughs> nice, nice, easy reading for a toddler. But I don't think he really understands the gospel. But what he does know is that there is a party at the end of time, that there is a, there is a party coming and Jesus is going to be there and he's going to be hosting this party. And, there's, and he now speculates what kind of cakes we're going to have and all sorts of different things. And I think in one sense, okay, I haven't really, we haven't really gotten to understand penal substitution yet. Okay, we get that. That will come. But he gets that there's a party coming. He gets the joy that awaits us. He gets that, that Jesus is the source of the greatest joy. Okay, perhaps he doesn't get that yet. But my point is, if you only get that, maybe that isn't such a bad thing. This joy that awaits us, this is the joy that's, that we hold on to. This is the joy that, is, that, it, that, that you can see all the way through the incarnation narrative. The angels, the shepherds, the, the magi, the, the, the wise men coming. They all walk away with a sense of joy. It's like the real lasting joy has, has broken into our world. And we taste it now. We just have a flavor of it. But one day that full joy is coming. We'll be consummated. We will experience the great delight of Simeon when we say, we have seen the Lord face to face. That joy awaits us, brothers and sisters. And to ignore this hope, to ignore the great hope of Christ's return and the joy that awaits us is to live as people who, without hope, is to discard the great um, hope of the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about, it says, if, if Christ has not been resurrected, or if we won't be resurrected, sorry, if the, if the hope is just for this life, then we are to be pitied above all men. Saying, if you don't see this resurrection hope, this hope of Christ's return, actually, the Christian life is nothing. This is absolutely essential to what makes the Christian life so enduring. It's what marks us out from everybody else. It's why we're able to grieve, but to grieve differently as those who have hope, real and lasting hope doesn't mean that we won't suffer. In fact, if anything, we're more expecting suffering because we know we live in this life now with thorns and thistles, but it means that suffering will not destroy us. What I want to suggest to you is if you have this fundamental optimism, if you have this posture of hope, it changes your ability to go through suffering. And the, and, and the author, Andrew Wilson, gave a wonderful blog post that I think illustrates this. Um, Earlier on in, in, in November, he was describing the different postures of our political leaders. And some carried a lot of optimism with them. And he particularly mentioned Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson as being very optimistic. And then he mentioned others who were kind of pessimistic, a m- bunch of uh, conservative backbenchers. And what was fascinating, he said, 
your optimism or pessimism shapes how you approach lockdown. The optimists were willing to go to kind of full, full lockdown and to endure through pain because they, they hoped that one day they knew they kind of had a much greater confidence that a vaccine was coming and all sorts of things would sort us out, whether it be vaccines or mass testing or whatever it was. And those who were pessimistic, those who said, no, that's, that hope is overblown and it will still be difficult, were much more unwilling to go through the deprivation. And this is what he says. The reason is eschatological. The optimists are pushing for lockdown because they believe that sooner or later the cavalry will come and rescue us. A vaccine or mass testing. Um, The pessimists are objecting to lockdown because they think that the vaccine may be a mirage. Mass testing has been overpromised and underdelivered several times already and we cannot place our hope in a macabreish belief that something will turn up. And then he says this, that dynamic is as old as the hills. Fear about the fears about the future make us want to eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Hope for the future makes us more prepared to endure hardship in the present. For if what we hope for, we do not see, we wait with patience. Saying, if you have this great hope, and for them, of course, it was a secular hope that the vaccine will solve everything, blah, 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 blah. But if you have hope, you're able to endure suffering now. Isn't that fascinating? I think we've seen that this year. Those of us who are more optimistic, have been more, more looking to kind of hopeful for the future, have been able to walk through this season with a greater joy. So that hope enables us to turn grief into longing, to join with the cry of the church, not denying the, the suffering around us and the suffering that we're experiencing, but to join in with that eternal cry of the church, come Lord Jesus. Let's not turn to self-pity or despair in this moment. Let's turn our, our, our grief into anticipation and longing for the return of Christ. So that's the anticipation and longing. But there's paradoxically a truth here. As much as we see Simeon and Anna uh, longing for this day, they are also able to walk through with great patience and trust as they long for the arrival of the Messiah, because they trust the promises of God. What I want to argue is that you can only have this kind of anticipation and longing because you have a patient trust. And actually, our, our response to this challenge that we're experiencing at the moment must be, marked, must be different to those around us, because we have a patient trust in the Lord's promises. You can see the patience in this picture. You can see the patience almost just by their age. Think about how they, Anna's 84. She's been holding on for this moment, not but praying day and night in the temple. Simeon holding on. See, the, see their patience in, the way, in the, the way they've chosen to be faithful to the Lord. They could so easily have turned to another course. There are those in the people of Israel who turn to violence, who become zealots and essentially terrorists to kind of take the future into their own hands and say, we will restore the hope of Israel on our own. We will bring about the, the kingdom for ourselves, so to speak. And there'll be others, others who compromised, who turn to, to kind of giving in to the you know, sin and, and kind of compromising in all sorts of ways. But no, these people are patiently trusting the Lord, and we can see that by their ongoing faithfulness. Simeon is, is described as a man who is righteous and devout. Anna is forever in the temple. We can see their trust by how they live. Night after night, Anna's in the temple because she patiently trusts the Lord that he will bring restoration for his people. And what I want you to see really is that actually patience, a sense of patience, is actually a defining virtue of the church. 
I was reading um, a book by Alan Crider, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And he describes how the early church was one of the great virtues that was um, emphasized by the, the church fathers, by those who were leading the early church, kind of just after the New Testament era, actually was patience. He describes how, how uh, you know, there were no mission manuals. There weren't like big, long treaties on how to evangelize your Roman neighbor. Nothing like that. No, actually, the main, one of the big virtues that these early church fathers emphasized to their people was patience. He's saying they were marked by a sense of a willingness to love their enemies, even as they experienced persecution, even as they experienced mistreatment, even as they went through suffering. They were marked by a, a patience a trust in the Lord, and a love for their enemies, not seeking to um, assert their will, not seeking to avenge themselves, but to live in a kind of humble patience. And she's saying that this wasn't even a virtue in the Roman Empire before the Christians came along. We talk about patience as a virtue, or some people do. Actually, that that owes itself entirely to the the early church and to to the New Testament. Of course, what that patience really is rooted in the in the character of God. See the patience of God. See how God is patiently dealing with humanity. How he is generous to the just and the unjust in this life. That he pours out the, the weather and all sorts of good gifts on, on, on all people. Even those who are deeply opposed to him. See God's patience through the story of humanity. As, as human beings turn on God and reject him, God continues to pursue us. To, to bring us to a place where we turn to him and worship him. Many of us will testify to God's patience in our own lives. We see this patience in the life of Christ, how Christ was willing to patiently endure great suffering, to patiently take an obscure place, to patiently um, take great um, vitriol and aggression and rejection from men, waiting for the moment that he would be vindicated. So this early church was then marked by a kind of a willingness to endure great suffering, a willingness to be mistreated by their neighbors because they had a patience which came from the very character of God. But ultimately, their patience was rooted in one day they would be vindicated with the Lord. You could insult them. You could take away their property. You could um, do all sorts of mistreatment. But because they were assured of the coming redemption with Christ, they were assured that Christ would would avenge them, would bring justice in the world, they were able to walk through that suffering with a patience. I want to suggest to you that perhaps persecution isn't the main challenge for the Christian life now, but we too have an opportunity to demonstrate the same kind of patience in the face of a different sort of suffering. See, the Christian will suffer very differently to others because of this quality of patience, because of their conviction of Christ's return. For a start, let's say the first thing I think that that this conviction of Christ's return does for you in terms of giving you patience in suffering, it gives you the conviction that Christ sees all. Think of you a Roman slave and you turn to Christ and you're being mistreated by your... um, master, so to speak. At that moment, without Christ, it would just be a horrible experience to endure through. But suddenly, when you know that Christ is watching, when you know that Christ is looking at you as you experience that kind of mistreatment, suddenly this is not just a kind of benign bit of rubbish that you just have to get through. No, this is a moment for you to dignify the Lord, to show him that you trust him. In a sense, this is a moment that 
invites faithfulness, a kind of testing moment that invites a response because the Lord is looking and will reward those who walk in faithfulness. That actually every bit of suffering we go through is not meaningless. Every bit of suffering we go through demands the right response, demands a posture of patience, demands faithfulness, demands a a response of trusting the Lord. And as you do that, that is an act of worship. That is not some um, moment just to forget. Even the trials we experience are moments to worship God with our response of trusting faithfulness. See this in uh, James chapter 5, where he's describing um, the suffering that these Christians are receiving. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's saying, one day a judgment is coming. One day there'll be a reckoning for how you act in this moment. Will you grumble? Will you protest? Will you angrily shake your fists at God? Or will you walk forward in humble patience through the trial? Because I think at that moment, that's Christ's response will be, well done, good and faithful servant, for walking patiently through the trial. This patience means we can be patient in the face of criticism. It means we can be, we, as, as you know, someone gossips about your work or someone criticizes you in the class, in wherever you're at, actually you don't need to avenge yourself. You don't need to fight to defend your reputation. You're happy to, in some sense, be considered low by others because you know that justice is coming, that Christ will avenge all injustice, that one day you will be vindicated. Ultimately, this patience means you will look different as you suffer. This is what one early church father said. Nothing else distinguishes the unjust from the just more than this. That in the adversities, the unjust man complains and blasphemes because of impatience, while the just man is proved by patience. He goes on to say, patience will temper anger, will bridle the tongue, will guard the mind. Saying, the Christian is patient in suffering because they trust the promises of God. They trust the promise that the Father will not give you more than you can bear. They trust the, Father, the fact that the Father is sovereign over every individual circumstances. And because of that trust, their life will look fundamentally different in the face of suffering. Look at Simeon and Anna. Look at their patient faithfulness, the way they patiently wait for the Lord in devotion to him, not not turning to violence, not turning to sin, but continuing to walk in trust with him. Let that be our model, brothers and sisters, that as we trust the Lord, as we know he is good, with lots of things we don't understand about this current season, but we can walk forward in humble trust because we know we have a good father who is in total sovereign control of the universe. And we haven't even a bigger, a bigger reason to trust than, than those. Think about how Simeon and Anna hadn't even seen the Christ, and yet they were able to walk in trust. We have seen the fulfillment of the promises. We've seen all the way that God has resp- uh, answered and fulfilled the promises all, way, all the way through the Old Testament. And so we now sit in a far greater position, a greater posture to walk in trust, that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill all his promises, not least his promise to return and to wipe away every tear and to restore the brokenness of this world. Hallelujah. But then finally, I want to suggest to you that this is not a passive waiting. 
This is a waiting marked by passionate devotion. You're not marking time until Christ returns. You're not just kind of thinking, okay, well, I'll just kind of sit here and wait till the, till the, real, the real action takes place. No, quite the opposite. We see Simeon and Anna walking in a passionate devotion. They are waiting for the Lord, but they are not waiting in the absence of the Lord. They're not waiting thinking, there is a day I will one day see the Lord. They wait with the presence of the Spirit now. This, as we wait in this season, there is an element of waiting to return to normality. I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, that you would use this season for passionate devotion to the Lord. I want you to see the way Anna is night after night in the prayer room, night after night in the temple, praying and fasting and worshipping. And I want to just ask the question, the obvious question, when she has all this time where she is waiting, somehow she's been released, she doesn't have a, she's not got married, she doesn't have those responsibilities, she uses that freedom to worship. She uses that freedom to pray. She uses that freedom to devote herself to the Lord, to ex- presumably experience something of an intimacy of the Spirit. Is that our experience at this time, brothers and sisters? Do we use this moment that we have where we are waiting in some sense, where the waiting of the, of the Christian life is all the more obvious in this time? Do we use it to devote ourselves to the Lord? Do we use it to passionately seek the Lord? One translation, Hebrews 11, it talks about the Lord rewards those who diligently seek him. Are we diligently seeking him? Or are we just turning to the same distractions and comforts that everybody else has? They're turning to those distractions and comforts because they have no other hope. They live in a world where all they can say is live, drink, and be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We do not live in that universe, brothers and sisters. We live as the people who have a hope, who have the presence of the Spirit now, who wait for the presence of God in the presence of God, in the presence of the Spirit. We have the great privilege and opportunity to dwell with God in his presence now. Think about when when Jesus told his disciples, it is a good thing that I'm going away from you because the Spirit will come to you. Simeon and Anna are just giving us this great window into this life filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, pursuing the Spirit. Are you pursuing intimacy with God at this time? Are you pursuing the Lord? Are you seeking him to speak to you? Just like she's a prophetess, he, he, the Lord spoke to him in this clear way that he would see the Messiah. This is our opportunity, brothers and sisters. They don't model for us a devotion and intimacy with God that looks so enthralling, looks so exciting. We do not wait as orphans, we wait as sons. We wait as sons living in the presence of God now with all the promises and with all the presence of God until one day we see him face to face. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a privilege? So are you pursuing God's presence in this season? Are you taking advantage of the obvious space in our lives that we have to pursue God's presence more wholeheartedly? To meditate on his promises, to hold on to his truth so that you can walk forward in patient trust. But you must also see that the work of the Spirit is not just a kind of intimate moment in your bedroom. You must see that there's a sense to which they are devoted to the purposes of the Lord. In a sense, there might be a danger that you read this and see, see Anna and think, all I'm meant to do is stay in my bedroom and pray. And that would be a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, if you did that. But there's also a sense to which the Spirit pushes us out. The Lord pushes us out into the world to find ways to love our neighbors, to love our friends, to to love our colleagues, to be distinctive presence in this world. 
Think about that picture that, he gave, that Jesus gave us in Mark chapter 14 about the watchman, about be, staying awake. The great implication of that is the master is coming back and he will ask the servants, have you been faithfully at work while I'm absent from you? Do not think of this absence as a kind of lying on your bed waiting for this to happen. No, you have work to do. Until the Christ comes back, you have work to do, brothers and sisters. We have, respons- we have a responsibility to love our neighbors. We have a calling to seek God's purposes in this world. Do not mistake this time for a time of um, empty, kind of languishing at home, doing nothing, waiting until normality returns. Brothers and sisters, take every opportunity to serve and love the people around you at this time, to show that actually we do not grieve as those without hope, that we do not live as those without hope, but we live with people as those who know that Christ is coming back to restore the world, and that frees us, that frees us to serve and love others in the moment now. See Simeon's faithfulness. See the righteous life because it is obedience to God's purposes and faithfulness that will ultimately show that you believe these promises, to show that this is not just empty talk. When you live faithfully, when you live obediently, that will prove that this is not just an empty promise, but this is the real truth that you believe and that you're holding on to. I want to conclude then and draw you together and say, Brothers and sisters, first of all, we need to remember, you are waiting. This is not the end. Like Simeon and Anna, we are just anticipating that moment when Christ will return, when we will see him face to face, the joy of the festal gathering. Let us remember that as we experience the thorns and thistles of this life, that we experience the darkness of this world, that we experience the brokenness. Let us remember that we are not yet at, uh, at the New Jerusalem. We're not yet at that heavenly city. But don't wait passively. Seek the presence of God. Pursue God's purposes in the meantime. Don't be ambivalent about this. This is an amazing promise that we have, the hope of Christ's return. But don't be passive while you wait. Pursue his purposes in the meantime. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, our lives are marked by two advents. Christ has come. Christ has died for us. His blood has been shed on the cross. We're going to take communion now. We're going to have a moment to remember that first advent of Christ's arrival. But there is an advent coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming back to be with his people. So as we taste the bread, as we drink the wine, as we worship, we are remembering Christ's death for us, remembering the great promises that that we've been brought into freedom with him. But we are remembering the promises that await us, this great festal gathering that is our great hope. Hallelujah. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that amidst all the trials of this season, we can look to you. We can look to you and to the hope that you are coming back, that we join with the the church, the great anthem throughout the ages, and saying, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we long for your arrival. We long that you, we know that there is a day coming when we will see you face to face, and we're so grateful for that reality. But as we wait for that day, Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked by worship. I pray that we would be like Simeon and Anna, walking in righteousness, showing a sense of trusting patience, walking in faithfulness, and utterly devoted to you. 
Would that be the reality for this church, for this people? You deserve it, Lord. We trust you, Lord. Amen. Amen.